Frank. As always, we'd like to thank our listeners for their comments, both positive and negative. Urge everybody to subscribe and rate us on iTunes so we can get some of that Casper mattress money. And follow us on Twitter at, at @takingship, and that's ship with a P as in persuasion. Uh, today, we're going to be joined by Chris Freights, who's a longtime friend of mine and a great guy. Chris founded and runs a firm called Storyline, which he'll tell us about in a second. But before that, he was an award-winning on-air investigative correspondent at CNN. He also worked as a reporter for Politico, National Journal, and the Denver Post, where he was part of the breaking news team that was a finalist for the 2007 Pulitzer Prize. Freights now hosts the weekly national, national Sirius XM radio show, Politics Inside Out, which everybody should check out. Uh, it's broadcast to over 30 million subscribers, subscribers, listeners, you know, whatever. It's Casper Mattress Money. Um, and he also co-hosts a really great podcast that we, uh, we, we, we will endorse on Taking Ship called Political Persuasions alongside a uh, old school shock jack who's really funny named Mike O'Mara. So, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Ellie, Frank, uh, Frank thanks for having me on. It's uh, awesome to be here. Totally pumped to, uh, to take some ship. <laughs> All right. So uh, we usually like to. As it's usually known. I would like, very much would like to take some ship here today. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we like to start these off easy. You know, give us kind of your background, how you ended up where you're at. What are you working on now? Yeah. So, um, so I was a reporter for 20 years. I started uh, in high school. Uh, I started reporting when I was 17 years old for my uh, local ca- my local paper, the Gloucester County Times, uh, little newspaper in New Jersey where I'm from. Um, really liked it. Um, it was like the best job ever, an excuse to basically talk to whoever you want, whenever you want. So that was a, uh, a ton of fun. Um, and so I did that. I worked um, my way up. I did about a dozen internships in college. I went to the University of Maryland um, and had a ton of fun there. Um, you know, the Campus Daily at that time was bigger than, you know, some of the newspapers I worked in in New Jersey. So, a uh, ton of fun. Um, went on to work at uh, newspapers all across the country. Went to the Denver Post after school. Um, worked there, covered state government, had a, had a, you know, a blast. And then Politico found, was founded in D.C. Uh, I had some friends, uh, the, the founders that came from the Washington Post, I had some friends um, who worked at the Post who gave me uh, John Harris and Jim Vandehuis, like home address, cell phone numbers, uh, you know, home phone numbers. So I just sent my stuff and just kept badgering them until they hired me. So that was pretty great. Um, and that was kind of a startup deal. Um, and Politico became a very big deal. Uh, that's where I kind of got an itch for entrepreneurship. I created a bunch of products, um, editorial products that were a lot of fun. Uh, went on to National Journal, um, which I, I wrote for the magazine. I did a lot of television and radio, which then ended up me going to CNN to become an investigative correspondent, which was uh, one of the best jobs I've ever had flying around the country, you know, shooting stories, having members on the House floor say things like, CNN knows more about this than we do. We got to get a million dollars to the inspector general, get to the bottom of this. And so that was very satisfying, a little less satisfying toward the end of my, um, stint there when I was usually standing in the cold in a primary state in the dark outside where Donald Trump was going to be, was currently, or had just been doing some version of this standup, which went, Donald Trump said some crazy shit today. Hillary Clinton said, nah, back to you. All right. Thanks, Chris. Let's bring in our panel. Um, so when, uh, when that ended, um, I decided, well, what do I want to do? Uh, I love to tell stories. I love to, um, report. And there was not a lot of that happening in the media landscape. Shockingly, you know, it's hard to go someplace where um, there's a lot of reporting going on. There's a lot of shiny ball chasing, a lot of reading tweets on the air. Um, so I started a firm called Storyline where we help trade associations, brands, nonprofits um, figure out who are their audience, uh, who are they trying to reach. Let's go find characters that will tell stories and um, move the needle for them. So I basically do journalism for um you know, for hire now, right? Like I wouldn't say it's journalism in as much, we don't go to the other side and say, well, why is this a terrible idea? But you use all of those storytelling techniques to help people get their message out and talk about um, things that are important. So if you're a nonprofit, like you probably should be telling your donors, here's the people we help, here's their stories, here's what we do. If you're a brand trying to move your reputation, you probably ought to find, um, the characters who help do that. So that's what we do uh, at Storyline. And of course, you mentioned uh, political persuasions, which is a ton of fun. I hope folks who are listening here will um, give us a try. Uh, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your fine podcasts, like Taking Ship. Um, and that's me and Michael O'Mara. It's kind of a shock jock and a Washington insider walk into a bar and talk about the politics of the week. So that's been 
just a ton of fun because he's funny. He does impressions. And then I'm like, well, here are the facts here, Mike. Cause he's a yeah, little he's, liberal. He's pretty, he's Uber lefty. Yeah. I would, he would say I'm not Uber left, but I, he's, you know, as, as a journalist, you know, I, I still kind of have a pox on all your houses approach to politics. Like everybody's a little bit full of shit. Uh, and so, uh, he is much more left. And so, I try to kind of bring a balanced perspective to that show. Uh, and it's been a ton of fun because he's, you know, he's not a ideologue. He's funny. He gets the joke, um, but he does feel uh, pretty passionately about some of the issues. So we, we talk about them and uh, there's never, as you know, uh, there's never a lack of material in uh, our day and age when it comes to uh, current events. That's kind of the opposite problem, isn't it? That it's, you know, there's now so much that it's impossible to know what to talk about and how, or it can be really, really difficult to figure out how to approach this from a journalistic perspective or from two guys in a bar. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, there, you know, when I talk to all my friends who are still reporters, which, uh, there are, are many of them, uh, still hanging on. Like I, I talked to a very, um, senior, uh, television correspondent and he was making a case like, you know, we don't really cover, we don't really do stories anymore. We just cover what's happening because it's happening so fast that, you know, you can't even kind of, there's, there's not really even time to contextualize it to, um, provide that journalistic value, particularly if you're on television, because something else overtakes it. So it's something that you're exactly right, Frank. It's like drinking from a fire hose and everybody is just exhausted all the time. And that, that seems to be kind of, I, I can't, I don't, I don't know any journalists who like the present structure. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's, it sort of feels like a, you know, like a, uh, like a surfeit of news, you know, 15 years ago, the idea of having too much news would have seemed a little bit ludicrous, right? Like, you know, there's always, you know, you, the idea that you could ever have some too much to cover probably wouldn't have been taken all that seriously amongst journalists. Although I think probably maybe, you know, maybe, maybe overstating the case there. Uh, but now that we're here, I don't know anyone who works in media who doesn't think that not only is this an annoying phase, but potentially a, a, a structure, a broken structure, right? Like this, this isn't, this doesn't seem to be going away. It doesn't seem to be getting better. This could be the new shape of things. And if that's the case, then they're not really pursuing the mission they wanted to pursue. So how do you handle this? Do you, do you just decide there's some things you're just going to take a pass on covering and you're going to go back to investigative models and other people get to like, what do you do? And I, I don't have a clever answer to this. What do you do? Well, I think you're right, Frank. Nobody has a clever answer to it because everybody who is smart about it is trying to think it through. And, and there's a couple different models, right? I think, um, you know, you have kind of the television model, which has always been, you know, television is very good at telling you what is happening right now. Uh, they're not necessarily great at analysis, despite all the panels that they try to convene to bring you some. Uh, and the written word is really the better place to go for that. And that is shrinking, right? You have your big um, media properties, your newspapers um, that are still hanging on the Washington Post, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, kind of big national papers. But when you look across the country, um, you know, my alma mater, the, uh, the Denver Post, for, uh, uh, you know, to give you one example, when I left Denver to go to Politico uh, more than 10 years ago, there were 600 employees uh, 600 journalists in Denver working for the Denver Post and the Rocky Mountain News. Uh, that was in 2007. So fast forward to today, uh, Denver, the Denver Post, uh, the Rocky Mountain News has shuttered. The Denver Post just announced it's cutting another third of its staff. So when those cuts are done, there will be 60 journalists in Denver. So there, are, there were 10 times more journalists when I left, uh, that is the shape of news right now. It's very difficult, um, you know, particularly on the local level, um, to, uh, find a business model to support that kind of talented reporting and journalism. It's expensive. It costs money to hire people who are good at this. Um, and so you have those forces with how do we make money off of this? And then the attention forces. And we used to joke, you know, when I got into print journalism, you know, a hundred years ago, um, we would make fun of television reporters, right? This idea that, oh, they only plunge in, they uh, make, you know, they do the surface and then they leave. They don't really know what's going on. Um, they, they don't bring you the context and they're only after your eyeballs, right? Well, that was a very easy opinion to have when you work for a monopoly newspaper that was the only newspaper in town, or maybe there was one other competitor, but you had uh, a monopoly over that revenue. Then came the internet and 
all of the same metrics that television and ratings, um, all of those same dynamics that televisions and ratings brought um, to television news came to print journalism uh, when you looked at what was happening online. Uh, and now it was, how many eyeballs are you getting? Are you getting clicks? And you know that's why the New York Times has a Game of Thrones poll, who's your favorite character, right? Because they're trying to get clicks. Like, who would have thought the gray lady would do that? Well, that's where we are now. And the shape of what to cover, how do you cover it, is largely a conversation around who's going to bring you the most eyeballs. Donald Trump is amazing at that. He's great for ratings. He's great for news. Um, and so that is part of why you know people are inherently interested. So it has become a, well, give them what they want and not necessarily the meat and potatoes and vegetables of what they need. It's a you know, news has become a constant sugar high to try to get those eyeballs. And there are places doing good work, places like uh, the Washington Post under Marty Barron, the New Yorker. Um, but that needs to be a much bigger pool. You, there, there have been whole, I was, I was reading something the other day, a county commissioner um, did not come to a meeting for nine months. And that's just because they never had a reporter who was going to the meetings every week to, to keep tabs on that. Like that's a problem for democracy. Maybe the commissioner was pregnant. <laughs> he, <laughs> was <not. laughs> he was not. All right. Well, there, there goes that. Damn, there goes that there. But the thing is, if there had been an investigative journalist, we could have explored that angle and, and <laughs> a little bit early. But this, I mean, to your point, content, content is cheap, right? And this is one, when you talk about it at the local level, uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily know if Ellie has ever advised anyone on this, but you know, one of the things that if you're dealing with a candidate who is, if you're advising a candidate who's struggling to break through and is looking to put together like early stage candidate, looking to put together a media strategy. Uh, one of the things that, I mean, you can tell them now is local papers are so strapped that they will, you know, and, and so hungry for content, uh, but so strapped on investigative journalism that you can send them, you know, not necessarily a press release, although maybe, but you can send them a video, you can send them a couple, you can send them the equivalent of a press release or, or you know, some digital information, and they'll run it almost into almost completely intact because they've just got to fill that time. They've got to fill that space at that time, especially that digital space somehow. And that really erodes, I think, the quality. So to your point, not only are there fewer journalists, but they're being asked to do a lot more than you know, than, than previous employees of the Denver Post, for example, had ever done. You know, they're, asked, they're being asked to do more with less. Uh, and the result is more inf more unfiltered information is getting through when the purpose of media, it seems to me, is partly to at least filter or at least put that information in context. Oh, absolutely. And when I started in journalism, you know, you'd have a whole day to put together a story. So you would start out in the morning, you would maybe have a tip that you're working, you call some folks, you would check it out, you would hear what the other sides, what all sides say about it, and then you would figure out, is this a story? What is the story here? Then you'd put it together for that uh, that afternoon. It would go out the next morning. You would start again. Uh, there was not a constant need to be updating your reporting and kind of you know tweeting it out. And, oh, I just found this nugget and that nugget. And, oh, it I, you know, turned a quick 200 word story and I'll update it as people get back to me. You know, it was much more of a final product. Um, you know, you can argue that that's good. You can see the work as it happens and you can kind of influence that work, but it also is a, um, a side effect of the fact that there aren't as many people in newsrooms. There is still the need ever more to churn out fresh content for, um, the website, for the web, for social. Um, and, even if you're on the communication side, like Ellie, I'm sure you've seen this. Uh, I talked to friends who you know, used to pitch stories. They call a reporter and say, hey, I heard XYZ. You, know, you might want to check it out. Now it's like you have to package the entire story and put a bow on it, right? Like you need to uh, have the links. You need to have the documents. You need to have the suggested people who you should call because a reporter only has so much time to do it. And they have to deliver it almost completely done um, for the reporter then to pick it up and run with it because there are 13 other things that are vying for that reporter's attention. Um, it's a problem. Uh, and I'm not sure what the answer is. Uh, ProPublica has uh, tried to come at it with a nonprofit investigative model where they team up with uh, newsrooms that have lost a lot of their investigative um, teams and reporting. Uh, the Center for Investigative Reporting, there are a number of nonprofits. Uh, and then you have, you know, kind of the return to the old days where the rich guys are buying media properties as kind of premier, I want to be a civic leader, Bezos and the Post. Um, you know, All Britain started Politico because he wanted to be a player in D.C. So you're starting to see some of that Jared financing the again. Observer. Jared, yeah, that's a great one. Jared and the Observer. Um, so, you know, I don't 
lots of people smarter than me, Frank, have thought about this question of, well, what do you do? Um, but it is, I think people are overwhelmed and kind of getting tired. I mean, I, I talked to people who are like, yeah, I turned off the breaking news alerts on my phone, right? Like I just can't with the, you know, constant, you know, bing, 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 like when it's not important. And if I wait till, you know, and I check it twice a day, usually that stuff is that's not important has fallen off. Yeah, I think that that you know what you said in terms of kind of the communication strategies now in terms of coming with a full product as opposed to actually battling with reporters back and forth, you know, for two weeks on a story that they're working on for your client or your company or your candidate, whatever it is, like just doesn't exist anymore. Now it's you know talk to these four people. Here's the background information. Call me if you want a quote kind of thing. <laughs> yep. And so like, you know, between that and the, the, what you were just talking about that, you know, it's clicks and eyeballs where people are see, people, they're giving people what they want to see. You end up with things like Fox news and Sinclair and MSNBC to some extent also where you're just getting, giving people exactly what they want and not giving another side or not giving enough of enough depth investigation. And then like Frank just said, you know, there's so much, there's, there's just so much content that has to get filled. There's so much inane that is covered. That's where, you know, when Frank and I talk about dumbest timeline America, a lot of that is just some of the media just focusing on things that don't matter. And Donald Trump is the master where, you know, Frank and I, one of the things that we push uh, on the show is that Donald Trump is not, you know, he's not playing 12 dimensional chess. He's, he's a moron and he's uneducated and he's surrounded by people who are really bad at their jobs. And we're all going to be lucky if we get out of this thing alive. But um, he, one thing he is very good is manipulating the media. That is something that he is extraordinarily good at because no, you're, I think you're the president, you have the biggest microphone and you tweet something and that's what everybody's talking about for the day. No, I think that's right. I think he understands media. He always has. And that's from his time as a, tabloid figure in new york you know he remember he's a guy who came from queens wanted to make it on the big island wanted to have respect of the old money uh and he did that by climbing up uh the new york tabloids he never kind of got the respect that he wanted which you could maybe argue if you're going to put him on the couch which i try not to put our president on the couch as i'm not a psychoanalyst and i've never even uh spoken with him but he's a guy who you know wants the ultimate respect a lot of people say that's why he ran for president. That's why we are where he is. Why we, that is what, why we are where we are. But Ellie, I want to go back to something you said before about um, more partisan media, right? When you take a look at Fox and Sinclair, which tend to be more conservative or MSNBC, which uh, is more progressive. Uh, that's kind of a back to the future, right? Like our, founding media uh, when the country was young was a partisan media. I mean, you still see vestiges of that today when you have uh, the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. It was a Democrat Gazette because it was a Democratic paper. And so you kind of knew what you were getting. We're heading back to uh, that reality as people seek out news that reaffirms their views. Uh, that's the tr that's true with social media. That has been true with cable and talk radio uh, for many years. And now I think, you know, the, the left's answer to conservative talk radio is largely podcasts, right? If you look at the crooked media guys, if you look at uh, a lot of the conversation that's happening in the podcast space, it tends to be more progressive, more left. And I think that balkanization, um, a lot of people would say, well, that's terrible for the country. I, I take a different view. I say, if you are, you need to be a more savvy news consumer and know kind of what you're reading and, and what the uh, ideology is of the network that is serving it up to you. But that kind of 360 worldview, I don't think is the worst thing, but I do think you need independent arbiters and you need people who will just call the truth, the truth. And that's where the media comes in. I saw a poll just today. Um, three yeah. out of four people the, think the Monmouth that, university poll. I was yes. about to mention that it's crazy. Yes. Three out of four people think that television and newspapers, uh, report fake news on purpose. People, I can tell you that is just not true. Like the conspiracy theory out there that somehow we're just putting out fake news. Like it, it if we were that organized, uh, you, you know, it, we would have taken over the world, right? This getting out a daily newspaper, they call it the daily miracle for a reason, because it's very hard to do. Uh, and it's not filled with fake news. It's just not. If you're reading your local paper, um, there, there are mistakes. There are things that happen. Uh, they are corrected. But they, this is not a uh, situation where reporters just make stuff up and get it into newspapers. It just doesn't happen. Despite what the president of the United States wants you to believe, um, 
that is some strong man stuff. It's not true. Uh, and I think that kind of, um, messaging that we've seen from Donald Trump, which he calls something fake that he doesn't want reported. And I think that is the problem. You know, we saw uh, back in December, he called fake news, the reporting around Tillerson, about Trump wanting Tillerson out, about the fact that he wasn't going to last through 2018. That was fake news and it's untrue and everything's peachy keen until he fires him, at which point all of that reporting was proven true. So fake news for this president is uh, reporting that he doesn't want to see right now, but make no mistake, that was not fake. That was sourced and was proven to be true uh, some months later. So I think that's a really big problem for our democracy, guys. Yeah, I think I think it's wild that uh, you know when 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 Josh Dossie or Maggie Haberman are breaking news, they have to they have to right now that you know spoken to twelve White House staffers or twenty five mm-hmm. White House staffers or something like that, where you know. A year ago, it was just assumed that they had spoken to 25 White House staffers. And I, you know what? And I don't think there is a, I think that kind of transparency is a good thing. Yeah. I think it's great to say, hey, look, we talked to 30 people uh, who work for the president, who are talked to the president, or uh, have dealt with this issue. Uh, and here's what we're hearing from those people. Um, I think that kind of transparency is great as opposed to the sources say, you know, right. well, how many sources? You got two people who say this or yeah, right, 30 right. people who say this. So I think some. Some of that is is good and kind of opening the kimono and showing your work as if uh, journalism were a very long algebra problem uh, is is never a bad thing. Um, but the idea that you can dismiss uh, news that you don't agree with as fake, even though it's sourced and reported to um, the highest standards in American journalism, is uh, is problematic. And I'm not sure what we do as the media um, to combat that you know that when you have such loud voices um you know on the right uh, under president donald trump and even someone on the left who you know will they won't say fake news but they will cast uh, aspersions on reporting they don't like yeah. and I, I think that 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 is a that tendency on the left where there is again like they don't necessarily shout fake news as much the leftist version of fake news or the left version it's different left and leftist are different the left version of fake news is uh this is all uh, this is all information that was supplied by russia that this is all like weird like everyone either this is a media and this is a and they, there is that like, you see this in the like the eric garlands of the world right where like they have this list of reporters who are either russian agents or have been compromised by russia in some way and so this is all like you know this it's not fake news in the way that the that that donald trump would talk about fake news they'd be like the media is out to get me personally but it's a similar function a need to see a purpose and a conspiracy and an intent behind behind the behind the simple reporting of information and as you say it's it is really it's i don't think for the, like you know i wanted to go back to your point that media has always or at least began in america in a very partisan way and really through the 20s and 30s had took on this kind of insane partisan shriek to it i mean if you look at the way the media was in the 1920s it was bonkers i mean you know i mean legit in this case actually legit conspiracy like honest to god conspiracy theories if you want to talk about it look like fake news honest to god conspiracy theories most of them in some degree anti-semitic reported on reported as fact on the newspapers of, on the front pages of broadsheets not necessarily the new york times but like a lot of the the kind of the bigger ecosystem um, so this is not a new place but we've come back to it in a very We've come back to it fast and hard, and and no one knows quite what to do with this stuff. And it's and it, as you say, it is a left and a right phenomenon in this way. Yeah, and uh, I mean, let's not forget, Hertz was able to start a war with his newspaper. So it is a uh, very uh, important tool, and when it's wielded, um, you know, we're kind of getting back to that wild west. And I think people are readjusting from a time when you had kind of three networks and a couple of newspapers that drove the conversation. They were the gatekeepers. If those places didn't feel like the story was up to snuff, uh, the American public didn't hear about it. There was downsides to that. A lot of things that were important uh, didn't get the attention that they were due. Uh, Now there are you know, Vietnam War for the first 10 years. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, it's not as if that was a wonderful setup, but you did know that what came through was credible and was the, it was truly mass communication. You were talking to the country. Now there are so many different channels that even a place like CNN, which, you know, has, I think the biggest homepage, um, biggest news homepage in the country. I think we get like a hundred million 
views per day on that homepage, that's still just a drop in the bucket for the bigger media ecosystem. So it is, um, it's a tough thing. I think people should be smart about uh, where they're getting their news, understand it, and you know, know that places like CNN and New York Times and Washington Post, uh, they don't put out fake uh, fake news. They make mistakes. Um, they get their reporting wrong. And the best places, um, you know, correct that. They're transparent with it when it happens. But you know what? It it doesn't happen that often. For as many stories as those places put out every day, um, to give you some sense, every every newspaper, every daily newspaper is the equivalent of a novel. That's how many words it has in it. Not the Sunday paper, just your kind of daily paper. So every day a newspaper is putting out a novel's worth of information, all of which has been fact-checked and has been rigorously reported. Uh, Mistakes will happen, but there is no reporter who is going to say, you know, I'm putting something in there that's made up because when they're caught, when you have a Jason Blair, when you have a Stephen Glass, um, they are ostracized. They are kicked out of the community and um, they are never allowed back in. And there's a lot of self-flagellation that happens uh, among all of the bosses to ensure that that never happens again, because it is the death blow to um, fake news is the death blow to any journalist business model. So um, yeah, I, I, I just, I can't emphasize that enough that, it is not done on purpose. So you know, with taking kind of that leap into the fake news and all that, going back to this Monmouth poll, um, there, there, there was this wild line in it which said that you know, enough Republicans are watching Trump's Twitter feed as their main source of um, news, that, that that's one avenue that... God in Christ, that's grim. Fake, <laughs> fake news is so bad. It's one avenue that fake news has really been able to, you know, k- kind of build and spread. So one of the things that Frank and I have talked a bit about on the show, and you know, we talk a lot about alt centrism and the the scourge of alt centrism. Um, and one of the parts of that scourge is this idea that the uh, Republican Party is going to sort itself out over the next two years, and Jeff Flake or Ben Sass or Mitt Romney will run for president and you know, we'll all just kind of forget the last four years. Um, being in DC and kind of talking to the people that you're talking to, what are you hearing in terms of, you know, is it fully Trump's GOP or is it Trump's GOP just as long as he's um, not impeached and successful and still cutting regulation and tax cuts? Cause the way we've always looked at it um, and we've, you know, Frank and I've been saying this for a year um, is, you know, tax cuts and deregulation are greater than morality. Yeah, so you, you, there's a couple of things to unwind there that I think are important to take a look at. When you ask, is this GOP Trump's GOP? Uh, I think the answer is a resounding yes, because the congressional leaders understand that you know it's their team who's in the presidency. Uh, they thought maybe they could control Trump a little bit more than they've been able to. Uh, but there's a real question about this tension, and it's been a tension, uh, Trump exploited it, but it was a, tr- a tension that's been there long before Trump, um, between the establishment kind of country club GOPers, uh, uh, the John Boehners of the world, um, and then the Tea Party uh, House Freedom Caucus guys. They are very different strains of republicanism. They are different strains of conservatism. Uh, one has a much more populist bent to it. Um, and what we saw before Trump was whether you were the Tea Party um, or you were Occupy on the left, um, both of those parties were able to kind of come in and, you know, if you were a Tea Partier, you would say co-opt. If you were a um, uh, establishment, you would say assimilate. But in either case, uh, the Republican Party was able to take the Tea Party, make it part of its uh, its bigger party and, and uh, was able to harness that energy. Democrats did the same thing with Occupy. And um, Donald Trump saw that and was able to kind of move forward and exploit that populist um, anger. And that was something that the Republicans had set up and, you know, allowed to kind of fester on the fringes of their party, whether it was his birther stuff or, you know, some of the more um, crazy uh, conservatives conspiracy theories, Donald Trump um, really uh, personified them, rode that energy. And there's a real question about what happens to the Republican Party 
after um, Trump, there has been a question that has been brewing and this interceding warfare has been happening for a decade. And frankly, it's also happening on the left with the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren uh, wings of the party and the establishment Democrats and where do they want to be and how do they want to govern? It is covered less because they are not controlling uh, government right now the way Republicans are. Uh, But I think I expect wholly expect that that will break out into full effect um, with the uh, run up to 2020. I want to stay with that, but before, and, and, and as, as part of that, I want to go back to what you said about Occupy. I am not sure that the Democratic Party actually was able to assimilate Occupy. I think that, in fact, a failure of the of the organized left, particularly of the, of the organized, or at least of organized liberals, the Democratic Party, to integrate Occupy, its members and its agenda successfully may have been part of the problem. Huh. Uh, how does that, how, how does, how does that say? Yeah, so, it, 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 it kind of created that schism that you were just talking about for Chris, like, but but I think I, I think you know in the same way there's the schism among the House Freedom Caucus and the Tea Party types in the Republican Party. There is that schism of uh, you know the little Elizabeth Warren wing and the rest of the Democratic wing, uh, but she represents that wing and she represents some of that ideology. Um, I think you're right, Frank. It wasn't as in, as fully incorporated or as quickly or as weaponized as the right was able to make the tea party. I mean, when you had kind of Dick army, you know, a former house majority leader um, for the Republicans running tea party stuff, they were able to institutionalize it much more effectively than the Democrats were. But I think that energy um, others in the democratic party picked up on whether it was Bernie Sanders uh, in 2016 or whether it was Elizabeth Warren uh, or Kamala Harris, now in 2018, there is that um, strain of liberalism, populism that the Democrats are going to have to reckon with. Yeah, I think that's right. I think what we are now, we are now, I think we are going through that process. So you're, you're, you're absolutely right about that, that this, and, it, and this is, I guess my point is if we had, what we saw with Republicans is, and this actually, I mean, to your point, uh, and this I think is in support of your point. On the timetable in which uh, Tea Party style, Tea Party type agenda became, if not at the core of the Republican Party, at least at the the front end of their messaging, right? Like for a long time, like the, you know, in 20, 2012 and especially 2016 with, with Trump particularly, like Trump's agenda, and again, I, I mean, Trump personally has very little agenda aside from, you know, self-aggrandizement and grievance, but he plays to a crowd and he knows who that crowd is, right? That crowd's politics is Tea Party politics and that politics is, 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 is largely Tea Party politics and that is largely ascendant in, in, Demo- in Republican politics. And again, it's about, it's, it is much more, I think, a function of messaging than policy. We are, so there were, you know, six years between the rise of the Tea Party and its appearance as the dominant politics of the presidential uh, primary of that party, we may be doing that as the Democratic Party now-ish, uh, where you know, six, you know, six, eight years after uh, after Occupy, we may be we are starting to see, and it's it's, it's you know what would be called some of their fringe demands, um, you know, fifteen dollar minimum wage, which is important, but not exactly a complete, uh, not you know, not exactly seizing the means of production and distribution and exchange. Uh, anyway, so it's you know we're, we are begin, but you're, to, to your point, sorry, to your point. Um, we some of the the basic demands of occupy i think and the and the sort of from the left of the party are yes are now becoming almost a consensus within the democratic party and that's happened really in the last year when we've moved to the left on this stuff i don't know i i disagree with the timeline a little bit frank i think um i think it happened two years ago uh in the in the democratic primary i think that bernie sanders you know the independent uh, senator from Vermont sauntered out of the Senate uh, floor one day, came down the steps, told a bunch of reporters, I'm running for president. And then no more questions. I got to vote. And then just like went and uh, about his way. But he fundamentally was the driving leftist force uh, in that primary. He won 25 states. He won half of the states um, uh, from Hillary Clinton, who was a juggernaut who had all of the establishment support running on things like a $15 minimum wage, free college tuition, free health care. Um, you know, the the idea of pushing the party to the left, um, you know, Clinton had to take some of those into consideration. She uh, was pushed to the left. And that question of 
of do we continue that leftward um, trajectory in 2020 as a party? And frankly, in 2018, when uh, the House, particularly House Democrats, try to take back uh, the chamber from Republicans, I think that has a lot to do with the setup for what things will look like in 2020, but I think it's already happened and Mm -hmm. it was, it was happening. There have been, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's progressive change committee, um, and Adam green and those guys, whether it's the move on folks, there have been kind of forces in democratic politics forced, you know, trying to force the party to the left. It was very difficult, uh, with Clinton as the candidate in waiting, uh, for all those years between 2012 and 2016, but it was happening and it broke out into the open in that primary. That's a good, that, I, I, under, I understand your point. Actually, I do agree with you on this one that, uh, that Bernie, that the, that Bernie's success as a, as a huge underdog, I mean, you know, as you say, I mean, this guy came out of nowhere, uh, as a presidential candidate that his success in the primary and then the durability of his, at least domestic agenda, right? That's the, you know, that like that, like the vitality of that domestic agenda is the one that's really pushing politics. Uh, yeah, I think that's about right. And that segment of the party has always been, you know, as you say, has been around with, with the move-ons. One of the, one of the things that in many respects, I, I, I probably should have seen this coming a little bit. Again, the, the continued vitality of Bernie's politics, because the, I, and maybe other, maybe other political operatives out there have seen this, politicos have seen this, the, one of the most enduring identifiers that I have encountered in democratic politics are the, are the people who supported Howard Dean. You would run into organ, self-organized yeah. groups of Deniacs in 2012. So you're eight years after a fail, after, after the, after his, after a failed presidential primary. And yet the people who organized around him are still self-organizing around his principles long after he is, I wouldn't necessarily call Howard Dean any irrelevant figure in American politics. That wouldn't be accurate. But long after he's, he has reached his potential in terms of that, he's reached the peak of his potential in terms of national influence. So that strain has always been really durable, but I don't, I admit it's expanded so much more over the last two years. So yeah, I think to your point that, yeah, you, I think your, your argument of timeline is right. Yeah, no. And, uh, and to that point, I, I think the Howard Dean, uh, example is a great one and really was a precursor to Bernie and a lot of what he was able to run on. Also, uh, you know, to, to Vermont guys, right? Like there's uh there's must be something about, uh, the, the, the maple syrup, I guess. Um, but to the point of the party trying to channel that energy, I mean, Dean became DNC chair, right? Like he's, he, he became part of and parcel of that bigger party. Um, but I think those splits and those schisms are really, um, are, are really frayed right now. And I, I think that Democrats are about to undergo the same kind of gnashing of teeth, um, that Republicans have been forced to deal with, uh, as they've had the house of representatives since 2010. Uh, and then again, in their presidential primary, this last go, I think our presidential, uh, primary, uh, in 2020, uh, may have a couple of folks who decide to run against Donald Trump. That will be fascinating. If some Republicans take up that mantle, uh, that would be that would be unusual for an incumbent uh, party, but I think the Democratic Party is going to look like uh, is going to look just like it did on the Republican side in 2016. There's going to be 16, 17 people because the Clintons cleared the the field so much that nobody that, that there was no bench developed. Right when you had Martin O'Malley and Bernie o- Bernie Sanders being the only two guys who were going to challenge Hillary Clinton. Nobody even got, you know, to step up to triple A ball and just play a little bit. Um, I think that was a huge mistake by Democrats and by the Clinton folks in particular. Um, not to mention that they've kind of uh, reformed the whole superdelegate process, which was, oh, hey, you guys can vote. That's real cute. But like, you know, the right. establishment guys are going to decide. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I think it's interesting if you take a couple steps back, I, I, you know, it's always easier to fight against something than fight for, than fight for something. So the Republican Party had the unifying message of just trying to destroy Obama. You know, McConnell laid it out like in the in the transition period in 08, like what, what the goals in 09, I guess, and what the goals of the Republican Party were. So when the Tea Party came up and the conservative, you know, traditional country club Republicans or pro-business Republicans or anti you know, the weekly standard national review comment commentary group came through. They were like, okay, we're going to bring those guys on because we got to beat Obama so that we can push through our thing. And then I think they lost control of it at some point. Um, when, particularly when Boehner got pushed out, I think that's kind of a, you know, a mark in the sand of when the populist group sort of took control. And I think Democrats, um, 
being in the anti are still are still fighting some battles that the Republicans got passed. You know, they were not questioning Barack Obama winning the election. They were questioning potentially his birth, but they weren't questioning um, uh, the validity of his win or if, you know, the count, they didn't have countdown clocks to his impeachment based on, you know, the emoluments clause or or uh, collusion with Russia or something. Um, whereas I still don't think he's going to be impeached, but that's... that's neither, neither, yeah, do neither, neither do we. Neither do we. <laughs> um, I think we ranked... Rank, Frank, what did we rank the possibility of, of him running, winning in 2020? It was... He, re, he decides he doesn't want to run as the most likely reason he may yeah. not win in 2020. Um, him, you know, his, his fast food hamburger lifestyle catching up with him. Uh, being a reason he may not like impeachment was way down the list of reasons yeah, why Donald yeah, Trump either, yeah, won't yeah, win in 2020. Yeah, if he's not the president in 2020, if he's not inaugurated in 2021, it will be for all sorts. You know, I mean, yeah, him him choosing not to, him having health reason not to, him being beaten by a Democrat. Those are all much more likely in our estimation, certainly my estimation, than him being impeached. I just I don't see that as being a, a as being a live issue in the next before the before his election his reelection. I, I think that's right. However, uh, if Democrats are able to take back the House of Representatives in the fall uh, and grab hold of those committee chairmanships and start investigating uh, Donald Trump. I don't I still don't think that leads to um, impeachment per se, uh, particularly when you have the separate track of Bob Mueller's um, Russia investigation happening uh, the Justice Department. But I do think it makes all of those options you guys were just laying out um, much more likely that it would be tougher for him to win because there is more information out there. He doesn't have Republicans protecting him uh, on the um, legislative side and the investigative side. So there's more information out there and that his agenda essentially is stalled by a Democratic House who says, well, no, our priorities matter now. Um, So that's why this midterm is so uh, important, I think, if you're a Democrat. But I also agree with you guys that like getting to impeachment would be a really tall order. And the Democrats who are floating these um, impeachment um, articles and and bills, you know, basically right out of the bat seem to be as fanciful as the folks who were trying to make the case on the conservative side that uh, Obama somehow was not an American citizen. And you're you're absolutely right about about the effect of uh, winning back the House and Democrats getting uh, the committee chairmanships, because I think that also could precipitate a resignation in the sense that, I mean, you're talking about someone who at that point would be so hemmed in and so in defense the whole time that I don't think he quits. You know that sure that's that is a I mean that, that would be unusual for him. But think about you know I've done my job here and I was treated very unfairly and I don't need you anymore. And so, like, I could see that kind of fit of pe- again, like we're not Frank and I had Frank and I had the idea before uh, before the Alabama uh, Senate race when uh, Luther Strange was still was still in the Senate. We we were pushing hard for the Strange King MAGA resolution. Yeah, the Senate just <laughs> passed the resolution, and the fact that it was going to be Strange King made it that much more fun. But they just needed to make pass a resolution saying that made America great again. And like Donald Trump will sign that, and he'll resign four days later. Like, it's the only way, only way to get him out. Yeah. I wouldn't put money on a resignation either, but, but, but to, but to your In point, that case, it should yeah. be the Pelosi Schumer, uh, you know, you made America great. Right. You, made America great resolution. The, the, you were right. And we were wrong resolution. Right. 2019. Right. Exactly. <laughs> we admit it. You're the greatest president. You're the greatest president ever. You'll always be our special boy. <laughs> you know, build a giant statue to him somewhere, obs- somewhere obscure and call it a day. No, that's, that's pretty much it. Yeah. I wouldn't put money on the resignation, but again, if he spends the next two, if he has to spend two years doing nothing but playing defense and totally unprotected at the legislative level, it could precipitate a large number of things. Uh, any one of none, none of which is the, is he's removed. We could see articles of impeachment, but the successful move, the successful execution of that all the way to the removal from office is just right. I think we're all on the same page about that. Yeah. Um, all right. So, well, we kind of went all over the map in terms of what we were just talking about. Um, all right. So why don't we do this? Um, I think we've beaten some of this stuff to death, but Chris, let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, you're in DC, you're still in these journalism circles. What's the rumor mill that you're hearing both from, you know, what journalists are working on or, or sort of ignoring, but seeing that it might be a thing. Um, what do you hear about, what are the rumors you're hearing from other people? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, why well, don't traffic in rumors, Ellie? Of course not. It's facts. <laughs> hard, hard news only. Hard news. Uh, but I do think. Well, let's I, assume you spoke to thirty reporters, so that you've got a good. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm hearing, uh, I think there will be some more shoes to drop on uh, the Me Too stuff and politics and media. I think uh, you'll definitely see um, some stories uh, targeted at uh, the media industry, um, particularly. I think CBS in 60 Minutes is uh, in for a bit of a hit based on uh, what I'm hearing is being reported out there around um, that particular program and CBS in general. Uh, I think there are a number of other politicians uh, on Capitol Hill uh, that reporters are looking into when it comes to uh, Me Too stuff. You know, you have guys like Blake Farenthold, uh, the Republican from Texas. Uh, Dude's just hanging on by his fingernails. It's kind of he said he, to watch. he said he was going to quit. He said he was going to pay back the 80 grand uh, that he used in federal taxpayer money to uh, settle with a woman he allegedly harassed. He has A, not paid that money back. B, not resigned, um, but I think more of those kinds of stories uh, are, are going to happen. And I think uh, the other piece that people are looking very hard in here in uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, around reporters is what's happening with Rush Probe. I think uh, Bob Mueller has played that uh, pretty masterfully. Uh, there's not been a ton of leaks. A lot of what has been um, telegraphed, has come through his court filings, has come through his indictments of Manafort and Rick Gates, uh, of course, two top uh, Trump campaign aides. Uh, I think what is happening there and the the machinations behind the scenes, and is the president going to try to shut that down? Are Republicans going to let him? Is that the um, party or country moment where the Paul Ryans, Lindsey Grahams, and Mitch McConnells of the world would have to stand up and say, no, you can't fire Bob Mueller, uh, we need to put the country above, um, you know, any kind of partisan politics. Those questions, I think, are ones that uh, are deeply engaging reporters in Washington. Yeah, uh, I think everybody else also being engaged by those by those stories. I mean, the, the Mueller thing is kind of it's amazing how little is coming out of that. When you think back to you know this Ken Starr and the amount that they were leaking. Uh, I mean, it was Friday afternoon, MSN, M- N- NBC broke the news of this professor that got stopped at the airport. And that was like huge breaking news, but it turned out to be nothing. Like, <laughs> they said, like yeah, he got stopped and he got asked some questions. Like, and I, they didn't ask him, like, did you pack your own bag? But it was like a little bit more than that. I think, uh, I think that also helps play into the narrative that, you know, if you're a Republican or a Trump supporter, uh, there's no there there, right? Like, uh, because you get kind of all these incremental pieces that are touted by reporters is like, check this out. You know, that here's, here's a new character. Here's a new person. And this is so convoluted. And there's so many different directions that this probe is going into, uh, the Russia collusion, the Trump finances, uh, all of these moving parts that throw on Facebook and the Cambridge Analytica stuff, which nobody really understands. Right. So you throw all that in there and then people just say, well, is there a there, there or not? Cause I keep hearing all this stuff, but like, it doesn't seem like the president has colluded. I don't see any proof of that. And they would be correct. There has been no proof out there that uh, he has uh, colluded or that he has done anything uh, illegal. But the question around what is happening is highly charged. But if you're a news viewer and you're kind of just a regular citizen, you know, it, it could sound like so much noise. And I think w- reporters and the media needs to be careful about that and that's where context and trying to okay here's why this matters we're not always really great about that yeah i i don't watch cable news anymore i you know i cut the cord years ago and and now that i don't do early morning hits for uh, i24 anymore i don't even watch morning joe like in the morning and i feel much healthier like you know, i've lost 10 pounds my hair's grown back like <laughs> it's wonderful uh but uh, you know I, I was over at um um, family on, on Friday and they were watching, um, Nicole Wallace's show. Nicole Wallace is, is a great person. Um, her husband's a good guy. Like, I mean, she's, she, she was a really good communication director. She's a smart operative, but I'm watching the show and she's got you know, Steve Schmidt and Evan McMullen and Reverend Sharpton and the editor from HuffPo and somebody else. 
And they're just picking apart the story that the post had posted about um, the Office of Personnel Management at, at in in at the White House and their hiring practices and their drinking games and all this. And I'm watching this, and it's like there are so many people that are turned into this just to watch people like Nicole Wallace and Steve Schmidt go after Donald Trump, um, or you know everybody's every Democrat's son best friend uh, Frank. What the hell's his name? Uh, Rick. Um, Rick Wilson. Yeah. Rick Wilson, um, who, you know, for, to both Frank and I's money has produced some of the most vicious attack ads in history, but now he's everybody's best friend. And, and this is part of like what, what, when we talk about dumbest timeline America, it, it's some of that. And I think that the problem gets exacerbated when everybody's trying to pay attention to what Mueller's doing and he's not leaking anything. And then little pieces drip out or, you know, the New Yorker writes a long profile about, um, uh, what the hell's the name of the guy in, in, in London? Um, the, the, the oh, former, yeah, the Chris Steele thing. And, and it's like, everybody's just like salivating over this or, or, you know, the, the, the fire and fury book, uh, which is interesting. The fire and fury book would, you know, think of uh, wolf of what you think of wolf, but then, you know, Mike Isakoff and what's his, and, uh, uh, David Korn just came out with a book that's probably, I would probably better reported would be my guess. Um, <laughs> and nobody, and nobody's talking about it. Yeah, I'm surprised by that. Uh, I haven't I haven't read their book you know, yet, um, and I know Iscoff and Corn, uh, and they they are good reporters. Um, you know, the, <laughs> I, I I know the criticism that the Michael Wolf book came under, um, and that was you know it, it, it was fun to watch um, kind of the Saturday Night Liveification of that book with Fred Armisen playing Michael Wolf, and like, so is it true? Yeah, <laughs> you know, like it was, uh, and it's the, not, not true. It's not, not true. It's not, not true. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I do think there is a, um, there's a hunger for information. And so the most, um, the, the, the most explosive information always wins. Uh, and so media has to be careful that if it's explosive, it's also true. You know, getting back to our earlier point, because people yeah, are so, tired, people yeah. get tired. People do get very, very tired. Um, and speaking of tired and kind of to bring back around what we were talking about earlier in terms of media's um, uh, ADD-ness right now, um, as a former reporter, somebody who's working for corporations and nonprofits, storyline, and you know, you're, you've got the serious show and you've got the, the, pod, the political persuasions podcast, what's something that you're thinking about, reading about, researching that you don't see other people focusing on that you think is like a big thing that's going to happen? Um, so... I have one answer and it's not that nobody is focused on it, but I don't see it as part of the conversation about, uh, because it kind of undergirds everything. So there's, there's one that I'm watching, um, that's being talked about a lot and I have thoughts on it. Uh, and then there's one. So to answer your question, I think income inequality is something that is so pervasive and I don't understand. In fact, I am trying to better understand it with the help of, uh, this book here is very long. It's called Capital. Um, it's He's uh, menacing whole, us with the Piketty book. Yes, the, the and, Piketty and honestly, book. Honestly, what better? What better to menace us with than the Piketty? And, and, and guys, I am trying to read it. It's very, very dense. Uh, I, heard it's, well, I heard it's better in the original French. It flows better. <laughs> <laughs> Je parle français un peu. Uh, but um, yeah, so I, I am trying to understand it because I do think this. Uh, system where we have just a very few with so much and the rest of us um, with less um, is problematic. And I don't understand exactly how we got here. I don't know what the solutions are. And it troubles me that we don't have a conversation about that uh, as a country. And that I don't hear our leaders either from the left or the right you know, kind of saying it's more of the same, right? If you're Republicans, then it's all about uh, tax cuts and let's empower businesses and everybody will be okay. And if you're on the left, it's, well, you need free healthcare and free schooling and, uh, you know, all the rich people should pay for that. And it just seems like those are such polemic uh, solutions to a very complicated problem. And I don't, when I talk to members, when I talk to really smart staffers, they don't seem to understand all of the dynamics that are undergirding uh, the income inequality problem. Um, I just don't see how you can move forward with two different Americas and not have a conversation around, uh, well, how do we make sure everybody has what they need in a very rich country 
who who gives up some so that everybody has uh, what they need to uh, uh, flourish. So that's something that that's to answer your question. That's something that I think certainly people are talking about it. Uh, it's not a hidden issue, um, but it's one that I don't think gets enough. Uh, mainstream attention around, well, how do you solve it? Uh, because everybody talks about it, uh, but I don't hear a lot of good uh, conversation and solutions. The second piece um, that I think is fascinating that everybody's talking about, but I think it has such a huge impact on how we're going to live our lives is uh, the tech clash. And this idea that, oh, wait, uh, Facebook was selling our privacy data. I'm yeah, like, and there's gambling in Casablanca. Like, oh my God, uh, like that's their business. Like shocked. that's what they, shocked. Right. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. That's their business. But the, the, when you talk, when I talk to tech executives, I was just out in Silicon Valley a couple of weeks ago. And then I uh, hosted a panel at South by Southwest. Um, and you were talking to those guys, like, they still have this, well, you know, like our product's free and people engage with it freely and, and they love our product and we don't have a problem. And it's like, yeah, that's because they don't understand what you're charging them and what you're charging them is their data. And as that starts to uh, become clear, how companies use the data, how technology is perceived, because it's no longer tech as its own industry, right? Technology is now just the economy, whether it's fintech or health IT or all of these places where data is power. Well, what does that mean? And like, you know, George Orwell had 1984 with the government's controlling all the information. It turns out like we're willingly giving it over to private corporations and only now are saying, wait, this could be a problem. And wait, foreign actors like the Russians could use our own platforms against us to foment uh, social instability and uh, division. Like all of these things are hugely important. It's being talked about a lot, but I am following it with quite a bit of intensity and fascination because you have um, tech companies who still think, oh, we only do things that are wonderful and great and we make the world better. And it turns out that actually technology, because it's made by humans, could be used for ill. How are we going to deal with that? It's very interesting to watch uh, that debate unfold. And that's one that is getting plenty of attention, uh, but I think is just so interesting. Yeah, and with yeah. that dystopian future, um, <laughs> let's let, let's turn to our uh, to our um, uh, uh, lightning round, if if that if that works now. Um, Frank, that go with you? Yes, absolutely. Awesome. Uh, so, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we're we're going to have to have you back on. Um, maybe even next time I'm down in DC, we can actually all be in the same place at the same time. Oh, that'd be del- that'd be delightful. That'd be great. Yeah. Um, so, with our lightning round, it's. Uh, five quick questions. Uh, the first is, is there a book, a piece of music, a film or a television program, really kind of any piece of culture that you've seen or, or re-seen recently that you'd recommend to our listeners? Uh, so the song, uh, no roof, and I'm trying to remember who sings it, uh, just crossed my radar. I love it. It's really fun. Uh, I would check it out. All right. Alice Merton is the artist. All right. That's a good call. Frank, I think this is the first song recommendation we've had. Yeah, this is the first musical one that we've had. In Excellent. Way. After your movie, um, Excellent. The next question, um, we're actually, this is just a large poll we're doing. It's not the, is a hot dog a sandwich question. It's, it's <laughs> our, our Pop-Tarts ravioli. Our Pop-Tarts ravioli. No. Okay. Yeah, that, yeah, that, we're kind of in the same boat on that. <laughs> um, what, is, what is your favorite beverage, alcoholic or not? Oh, favorite beverage. Uh, or just shoot. one you'd like to recommend. And what, would I, what would I recommend? Uh, I like a, a very nice uh, Havana Club seven-year on you. Mm-hmm. That's a yeah. very, very strong call. That'll work. <laughs> um, and, um, now that you're out of journalism and maybe you can talk a little bit more freely about this stuff, uh, the question we like to ask, um, in the Trump era, lots of people are interested, interested in doing something. Uh, what's one organization uh, you're supporting and why? You know, I still don't get out there and do a lot of uh, advocacy um, because it just it's just not... Yeah. Is well, that my blood? Cha- a charity also is fine. A char- so, so uh, a charity that I think is doing great work is here in Washington, D.C. It's called um, uh, it's called House of Ruth. It provides uh, 
housing to domestically abused women and their children, uh, has daycare for kids, uh, counseling, uh, really a holistic approach to uh, giving women who have nowhere to go um, a hand up uh, and not just a hand out, as the old saying goes. So uh, I am a big fan of House of Ruth. Great. That is an excellent, excellent recommendation. Uh, where can people who want to follow your thoughts and musings, where can they find you? Oh, they can find me all over the internet. Uh, at Freights, F-R-A-T-E-S on Twitter. Uh, Chris Freights on Facebook. Uh, I also, uh, of course, Political Persuasions uh, in iTunes. And then SiriusXM, uh, if you're a subscriber, uh, Politics Inside Out, all weekend long. Uh, you can also listen on the SiriusXM app. Uh, so I am everywhere. And I just want to also append, I don't know if I said no roof or no roots. It's No Roots by Alice Merton. If you go looking for that song, No Roots. Uh, so I'm not sure what i said there but i want to make sure i got it right all right that, that's a that's a good correction as proper media people will do as we do it's mm-hmm. no fake news here on taking yeah. ship that is absolutely the case yeah. that's a taking ship guarantee and by yeah. that we mean there, there will be some fake news yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right chris freights thanks so much for joining us uh, as, as chris just said check out the serious show check out the podcast political persuasions uh, we recommend it it has the taking ship stamp of approval Uh, Thank you all for joining us. Uh, Please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Taking Ship. And that's ship with a P as in, I don't know, Picayune. And um, you can follow Frank at at Frank Spring and me at at, at Adelie Jacobs. Uh, Frank, with that, where are we headed this week? We take ship this week, uh, not far, especially not for Ellie. We are going up uh, up the river to the United Nations uh, because there has been another outbreak of discussion about amending or signing the law of the sea. And I'm sure that our listeners who have... Uh, who know our position on the sea uh, will understand where I'm going with this one. Uh, The law of the sea is meant to govern maritime affairs. Uh, It's largely held up over the last 50 years. Uh, But my friends, this whole concept is ridiculous. The sea knows no law. The sea only understands one thing. And the idea that we can negotiate with the sea or attempt to impose law on it is insane. And so, my friends, we take ship this week uh, to the United Nations to to stand before the family of nations and call for what needs to be done here, which is an end to negotiation with the sea, an end to an attempt to structure a relationship with it, and the unremitting and vigilant hostility that the sea deserves. Friends, we take ship now for the United Nations. Take care, everybody.